This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Back in January, there was this moment where Ben Judah thought there is something wrong with Vladimir Putin. Ben has written a book about Putin. So he was watching official Kremlin video of the president celebrating Orthodox Christmas. The video shows only Putin himself, totally alone, listening to a religious service, lighting candles. And it's really a haunting video that we will see in many documentaries uh, far into the future of this one man completely alone in a gold-clad chapel, his legs buckling slightly as if he's unwell. He kind of gulps. He, like, gulps and his, his face is red. And his face twitches very strangely. What stood out to Ben was how isolated Putin looked. Ever since the pandemic started, Russia's president has kept to himself. You might have seen those pictures of him meeting with other world leaders. Putin's on one side of an extremely long table. His counterparts are yards away. Has Putin always been alone like this? Uh, The answer is no. Vladimir Putin has been in power almost 23 years. That's a generation. There are millions and millions of Russians that have never known the country without him. Over time, if we look at the political science, populist strongmen tend to turn into leaders of authoritarian regimes. Authoritarian regimes can have a tendency to descend into personalist dictatorships. And throughout that time, you can see a transformation of the man at the heart of it. A personalist dictatorship is when the entire power of a state lies in the hands of a single person. And Ben says that's what Russia's become. If you look closely, you see the hallmarks everywhere. Just compare Putin's decision to launch a war on all of Ukraine to his decision eight years ago to occupy Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. Putin himself has sort of told us that when the decision was taken to annex Crimea, he stayed up all night. He gathered his uh, security chiefs and his colleagues, as he put it, and they took this decision. They advised him. And crucially, the decision was based on secret polling that they had done of the Russian population, showing that the crushing majority of them were favourable to Crimea's return to Russia. The decision to invade Ukraine has not been taken in that way and came as a dramatic shock to the Russian elite. It's a decision that was taken really in the context of that video that we began the conversation with. Hmm. With him all alone, making the decision by himself. All alone, physically, sort of very isolated from people around him, people around him either not believing or not fully knowing what was happening, with them having grown extremely frightened of him. 
Today on the show, why Putin ditched his inner circle with the West enacting crushing sanctions on everyone with ties to the Kremlin. The question is, can anyone actually reach the man in charge? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As Russia pushes further into Ukraine, I keep hearing about the West looking to pressure Vladimir Putin by cutting off Russia's elite. And the hope is that these people do something about the ongoing invasion. But at the same time, I keep hearing from folks like you that Vladimir Putin like has no elite inner circle, that it's really just him. So I want to explore this contradiction and kind of how we got here. So I think the moment that we should begin to answer that question is the very late 1990s. We see Putin having been sort of elevated for a very, very chaotic situation to become head of the FSB domestic intelligence services. And in the politics around him, you see him elevated to become uh, prime minister. And the moment that he was offered the crown, it was understood that he was being offered a role that would see him be the president and the successor to the ailing Boris Yeltsin. It was an oligarch. It was Boris Berezovsky, a billionaire who owned TV stations, who owned private jets. He was kind of running his own foreign policy and was part of what was called the family, a group of, you know, billionaires, some kind of security officials around the president who were exerting a lot of influence over him. And can you just define the term oligarch? Because I feel like it's tossed around a lot and rarely defined. Oligarch is a term that really comes from the intense image of Russia in the 1990s. It's simply what Russians uh, started calling these billionaires who were exerting sort of collective rule and collective power, it almost seemed to them, over the weak democratic, semi-democratic government of uh, Boris Yeltsin. They were kind of like a countervailing force to the Russian government, is my understanding? Well, it comes from Aristotle of democracy, uh, oligarchy, and autocracy. And it was a word picked up by kind of Russian thinkers to express the fact that they were in not the rule of the one, they were in the rule of the few. But a clear example of uh, oligarchic power is when Boris Berezovsky arrives to meet Putin. And he goes to him, would you like to be president. And Putin goes, and it's a very kind of chilling moment, goes, I don't want to be president. I want to be Boris Berezovsky, because the person offering the crown is obviously the person who holds it, really. Huh. Putin enters into the Kremlin. It's believed by Berezovsky that Putin, he's hired a bodyguard. And what Putin did, and it, it happens, happens many times in history, is that the bodyguard mugged the king, mugged the uh, <laughs> oligarch. And Putin 
who was believed to be a sort of quasi-president, assumed dominance and terrified the oligarchs by destroying Boris Berezovsky, driving him into exile. Boris Berezovsky had survived previous attempts on his life. This massive yeah, I mean, we should, we should tell the Berezovsky story because it is really stunning. Like, he ran the main television channel at the end of the Soviet era. Berezovsky's close relations with Russian presidents, including Yeltsin, earned him the nickname Rasputin. But he fell out spectacularly with President Putin, becoming public enemy number one in Russia and having to flee to Britain. Yeah, so Boris Berezovsky had pushed around and bullied the Yeltsin government. And through that bullying had acquired more and more kind of concessions and that's kind of funds and influence for himself. He then found himself believing that he could do that to Putin, that he could just pressure this guy that he had helped come to power. And cut a long story short, Putin destroys his media empire, takes away his uh, TV channel. You know, the key scene really for me is that you find uh, Berezovsky going into the Kremlin, you know, demanding to kind of see Putin, and Putin simply going to him, you're the head of this channel, ORT, it's mine, I want to run it. Huh. You have another important challenge, which comes later from the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Mikhail Khodorkovsky sat on one of Russia's biggest fortunes. He had acquired it through the privatization of massive companies in the 1990s. And this oil baron was like the richest person in Russia. This man thought he was an independent power player with dreams of becoming president or prime minister himself. He was sort of involved in politics and he thought he was dealing with a strong man. He didn't realise he was dealing with an individual who was about to establish an authoritarian regime. So if we've made mistakes about Putin, we should remember that a lot of very, very smart and important people in Russian history have made those mistakes too. They were fierce rivals, one with the money, commanding the equivalent of 360 million euros to buy Yukos, the other with the political power. This was really a contest about who was sovereign over oil. Did the oil really belong to Putin and the Kremlin and the state? Or did the oil belong to these kind of companies, that these oligarchs that have privatised you know, huge assets? So Khodorkovsky thought that he could be strong enough and exert influence enough that the oil was privatised and now it belonged to him. He could use that revenue to kind of try and build the Russia that he wanted. Putin jailed him, arresting him on his private jet on a tarmac in Siberia. I just want to wrap both of those strands up because with that oil baron, he's in exile in London. But with Boris Berezovsky, he was found dead. We don't know exactly what happened to Boris Berezovsky, whether it was suicide or whether it was an assassination. I got to know Boris Berezovsky and kind of interviewed him shortly before uh, this happened to him. And the man was like visibly sort of disintegrating because he found himself in this terrible situation, which is an oligarch with so many enemies, so many threats, can't run out of money. What happens when an oligarch runs out of money and can't pay for security, can't pay for the life he, he leaves? An oligarch simply just can't go back to kind of living in a, you know, a small little flat. Hmm. He's uh, in a situation a little bit like a dictator, one could say, where they face no prospect of retirement. So Boris Berezovsky and Khodorkovsky 
were these sort of independent-minded oligarchs who were essentially liquidated as a class. And the oligarchs that remained realised that the only way that they could retain the wealth that they'd acquired was to turn themselves into the allies or the instruments of Putin. One analysis I read said that to be called an oligarch today is to be branded unpatriotic in Russia. Well, yeah, like oligarch has become a sort of term of uh, abuse. Putin said that he sort of brought the oligarchs to heel. Putin claimed to be establishing the rule of the many and not the rule of the few. But in fact, he was uh, establishing the rule of one man. So would you say there are any oligarchs left in Russia? Not really is the answer. So another kind of chilling moment that's important to watch in the videos of this and that should be cut into future documentaries is that Putin gathered what was called an oligarchs meeting by the Western press in the Kremlin. It was, just a, it was I think, two days after the decision to recognise so-called republics of in Donetsk and in Luhansk. If one looks around that room... Really, like, very few of the people there are what we would think of as oligarchs. These people are state company owners. Like, the state is now a huge presence, dominant presence in the Russian economy. They're employees of the Kremlin. And they have a security service pass. They've got a KGB, SVR, FSB pass. And these people are placed there by Putin in his network in order to control the commanding heights of the Russian economy. There are a few people that we would think of as oligarchs, like self-made men of billions. But the idea that these people are pushing him around, or that they even like really exert any kind of sway or have any influence networks of their own in Russian society is just a, a mistake at this point. After the break, if there aren't any oligarchs left, How effective can U.S. sanctions be? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Some of the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and the European Union hit the entire Russian economy. But others are targeted at these oligarchs we're talking about. Ben Judah explains the thinking behind these kinds of sanctions like this. You've got the need to deter the Kremlin elite, and two policies are coming out of that. We should deter them by threatening to put sanctions on oligarchs, transnational businessmen, Putin's sort of elites or henchmen that have properties, lives, uh, investments and mansions abroad. But if Putin doesn't care about what happens to the oligarchs or the people because he feels so insulated. 
Exactly. That's the problem. Most of the kind of Russian sort of business elite and people who'd sort of thought they were or formerly Kremlin insiders did not believe that this was going to happen. They just it just seemed such a bad decision to them. The Russian public didn't believe it was going to happen. The Ukrainian public didn't believe it was going to happen. The Ukrainian president didn't believe it was going to happen. Given that we, all of us, sort of collectively had such a bad assumption about what was exactly going on in there, we shouldn't push policies, trying to second guess, second order consequences, thinking, okay, if we do this, then these people are going to do that. If we do this, then the public's going to do that. What we need to do when pushing forward policy is just not try and guess what effect it's going to have on the Kremlin and go, these are our interests. These are our red lines. We don't really know what's going on with you or what's going on in your your country. Here, no further. This is where your off-ramps are. This is uh, my core interest. Don't you dare touch it. This is what I'm going to do. And just be incredibly clear like that. It's interesting to hear you talk about how realizing who Putin is, how isolated he is, and how his regime has changed is helpful in that it tells you what to do next, which is you can't pretend to know what's happening and you can't pretend like you're going to create dissent that's going to impact someone like Putin. But it seems to me like that's exactly what the sanctions are trying to do. Like there, the idea is... Let's make it uncomfortable for these quote-unquote oligarchs, and maybe they'll do something. But it sounds like what you're saying is, nah. Yeah, that's <laughs> not the only reason the sanctions were enacted. So the let's just have a look at like Putin's transnational networks. They mostly live abroad. And these people and their presence and the things that they were purchasing in the West and the business they were doing in the West was in a sort of giant influence operation to try and buy elites, buy key financial assets, become, you know, points of control, push back on policies. So the strategy is you need to dismantle that. And Putin should not be permitted to have that. And this elite should not be permitted to have that if it's going to engage in wars of conquest. So the second part of the strategy really makes sense. But are we doing enough of that second part? Because I look at someone like Roman Abramovich, who's one of these oligarchs, he owns the Chelsea Soccer Club in the UK. And Boris Johnson was just confronted over the fact that he's essentially operating without uh, without sanction by living abroad. The, the Ukrainian journalist who confronted Boris Johnson broke into tears. You're talking about more sanctions, Prime Minister, but Roman Abramovich is not sanctioned. He's in London. His children are not in the bombardments. His children are there in London. Yes, well, we've got a personalist dictator. When you have personalist dictators, they only have kind of lackeys around them. They've terrified the people around them. And personalist dictators tend to perform extremely badly on the battlefield. Now, when you've got a personalist dictator and you've got people around him, you need to stop thinking that they can really exert any influence on him and try and work out, are there some that can be made to be defectors? Are there some that can be roped into the diplomatic process with the uh, with allies to make them pull back from the brink? So let's have a look at exactly what's happening with Abramovich. Roman Abramovich left the country a long time ago. He's an Israeli citizen and an EU citizen who's lived in London for a long time. He's primarily based out of Israel at the moment. 
Zelensky, president of Ukraine and is himself, of course, Jewish, has been calling for Israel to mediate between Russia and Ukraine, because Israel is the only country, he says, and he's right, that has good relations with the Kremlin and good relations with the, the White House. Zelensky personally requested that Abramovich be at the table negotiating in these peace talks. So I think we need to just cool it. And if the Ukrainian president is uh, asking for this person to to be present, it would be foolish for the British Prime Minister to sanction him and prevent him prevent him from playing that role. We need to think politically here about what's going on. And thinking politically is not thinking in an ethically satisfying way. You know, sort of so-called oligarchs that, you know, Ukraine views as hostile entities, we should definitely sanction them. But I'd like to be taking my cues here from the Ukrainian president and not from uh, campaigners and uh, journalists in a press conference in the United Kingdom. So let's turn back to Vladimir Putin. We've sort of talked all about what's happening around him. You've also studied the political science of what happens when a ruler changes the way Putin has, when he's become a personalist dictator. What does the political science say about what's likely happening now? So political science is pretty depressing, actually. The political science says that once you get a personalist dictator like Putin, basically they're almost only likely to leave either through a coffin or through a coup. Russia is quite a wealthy society, and societies that get as wealthy as Russia almost always are democracies unless they are Singapore or by some measures China or they are petrostates, for the most part, you know, oil uh, autocracies in the Middle East. The difference is, is that Russia would be the only one of the wealthy autocracies to have ever experienced something like a democracy and been a free society. So what Putin is trying to do is not just keep a personalist dictatorship going after a war has gone badly, after Western sanctions. It's also keep it going whilst trying to take the country back into a sociological situation with repression and an economic situation with the country having dropped out of you know, the, for the most part, international finance capitalism to where it was, you know, to a certain extent in the Soviet Union. I think for a lot of Russians, the 90s aren't a happy memory when Russia flirted with democracy. Economically, it was terrible. Boris Yeltsin was an embarrassment. So in some ways, Putin was a relief. Putin comes to power and his big slogan is stabilist. I stand against the wild 1990s. People had experienced the wild 1990s in terms of wild inflation and loss of their savings. And Putin broadly delivered macroeconomic stability. Now, the thing for me that's just leaving me dizzy is that with this war and the bank and the central bank sanctions that were unleashed, Putin has destroyed his own stabilist in one day. 
But he's now brought Russia back to the wild 1990s as his own wild 2020s. Like one estimate is that we could be looking at 40 to 60% inflation for Russians. We're entering into a very chaotic uh, period for Russians in terms of their finances, in which Putin has brought back everything they hated about the 1990s. So Putin has destroyed his contract with the Russian people. By the time you get to be a person's dictator, you don't have a contract with the people. You just have fear. You repress the people. You repress your inner circle. You're trapped in this sort of situation where you're fighting for your own survival because you can't retire and you'll do whatever you uh, have to do. Ben Judah, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time and your thoughtfulness. Thanks. Ben Judah is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and the author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. And that, that's our show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, Daniel Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. We're led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. We'll be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow morning. Catch you then. <laughs>